Praise the Lord. You guys glad to be back in, in the fellowship of believers? Me too, man. I enjoyed the snow break, but I was ready to get back in here. I, I'll tell you, it's just really weird preaching to that camera, and there's nobody else in there. I don't know. It's just strange. I don't care. I will take any opportunity I get to preach, uh, even if it's to nobody and to a screen. Uh, I, I do love preaching. It, it is like a part of me, I guess. But I, I appreciate you guys being here this morning. I'm, I appreciate the opportunity for you guys to, uh, uh, that you have given me to, to uh, preach and to unpack the Word of God. It, it truly is an honor. Uh, to me. I had sent Brother James McGuinn a message earlier. Uh, those of you who know, I didn't know till this morning, but Sister Kathy McGuinn is in the hospital, and uh, I asked him what was going on and how we could pray, and he just, just now messaged me back and said she's got a bad throat infection. They did a CT scan and said her thyroid uh, nodules have grown uh, also, they see another mass, but not sure. Anyway, they're treating her, but I just wanted for us to pray for S Sister Kathy McGuinn this morning uh, and to ask the Lord to be with her as she's going through this thing. And there's uh, lots of other people that we could pray for as well. I know the Drake family just lost a dear member of their family and Nani, uh, Dustin and Star's grandmother, so let's pray for them as well, we do have a significant praise this morning. Uh, Robert uh, Farmer's son, Austin, uh, was, had some things going on. Uh, not sure what was going on. They even threw out the big C word that is a possibility, and he's young. And uh, so we, uh, we shed some tears over that and prayed and sought the Lord. And he came, and the, the men of God surrounded him uh, last Wednesday night, or Wednesday night before last. And uh, put hands on him, anointed his head with oil, and prayed over him, and praise God. This week, we got good news uh, that uh, he went, had scans and tests, and was put to sleep, I think, and uh, they couldn't find anything, and said uh, they, he had some blood in his urine and some things like that, and they said uh, they have to just chalk it up to a kidney stone that he had passed and didn't know. Uh, so anyway, that's a praise. That's a praise. They found nothing out of the way. And uh, yeah, praise the Lord. And lots of other things, I know that I'm, I'm leaving some of you out, it's not by uh, choice, but I know that there are lots of things here that uh, people are struggling with, and so uh, I just want you to know that we're praying for you. And if you want to uh, let us know what's going on, please uh, grab a bulletin. All of the elders' emails are on there, uh, there's telephone numbers on there, there's the church email, life at the well-landrum.com. Let us know. It's not a lot of the times we miss, and you might think that we just don't care, or forgot about you. But 99% of the time, it's 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 that we just don't know, and so we can't. We don't know unless you tell us. So please let us know how we can pray for you. Uh, a couple of things that I told you that I was going to touch on before I jumped into the sermon, and that is, uh, we have t been talking about this deacon ministry that we are about to launch, and we are excited about that. And our goal as of right now is to have the nominations done, uh, not this coming Sunday, but the next Sunday. Now, for that to happen, <clears throat> we have our active membership partnership list that is d details to us who is an active 
partner at the well. And by active, what I do mean, and I want to be straight up front about this, all of you, well, many of you have probably been in churches that have 300 people on the membership roll, and they have 80 people that come to church. We're, we don't do that here, okay? We have an active membership role. We do have more people on our role than we have coming here, but after a certain amount of time, with no real good reason, we deactivate and we just put non-active member, which means that you can't be considered until you have come back into the fold in a way that makes you an active member, that you know what's going on in the church, you're an active part of the church, that you won't be considered for those types of ministries and positions and leadership because we want those uh, to be given out to and granted to those who are actively invested in, in the church and know what's going on. Does that make sense? Uh, and plus, there's no voting rights uh, for non-active members. And so we've all seen it or heard about it, you know, being in a, in a small Baptist church or small church where they've got some type of voting going on and all of a sudden... 50 members show up that you hadn't seen in two years because, you know, somebody wanting to be voted for gathered these 50 members up just to come and vote, but we're not doing that here. So we will get that active member sheet out next week, and I want you to look over it because I'm sure that I'm missing a few people on there. We've done our best to make sure that everybody is on there that should be on there. But I'm going to hand that out. If you're not on there and you think you should be on there, it's not because we don't like you. It's probably just because we missed it, okay? Come and talk to me. We'll get you on there and we'll get it all straightened out. That way the next week we can uh, nominate some deacons and see, uh, see what the Lord would have for us there. Does that make sense? Uh, and I'm excited about this because I believe that this is one, not that we, that we don't have people doing what deacons do already. I think we have that. But I think that this will help us to organize and make sure that we're meeting the needs of the people in the church and that we are doing what the Bible calls for us to do as far as ministering to the people within the church and the things in the church that need to get done. All right, so with all of that said, let's jump into the text and let's see how far we can get. We're in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to try today to cover verses 5 through 14. Now, to, <laughs> don't laugh at me, Marcus. This is a section. Heather laughed too. I don't know. But this is a section, and I think I can move a little quicker through this. But I'm not going to rush it. But I have had a few cups of coffee, so if I start talking really fast, y'all help me out and say, hold on, big fella. All right? And we'll try to get through it. Also, and I'm, we, wow, why does this keep doing that? There it is. Okay. Okay. So I've got a lot of information on here, and I can give you a copy of this information, and I also have, and I hadn't tried it out yet because I'm scared to do it, I don't want to take the time to do it, but this new pro presenter has a live presentation feature where it'll pop a, uh, it'll pop a, one of those little QR codes up on the screen, and you can actually take a shot of it, and it'll take you to the pro presenter or the PowerPoint on your phone, so you can see it right on your phone. Uh, we might do that next time. I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I ain't going to mess with it. But uh, be looking for that. And also, you'll need internet. The well does have now, you may already know, but it has a well guest network that we have made available. In the past, we only had the network that ran the church, and we couldn't give it out because it slowed everything down and knocked us offline. But now you can go on your phone, and you can go into the well guest network. It's not 
Uh, it doesn't have a, um, a lock on it or a code or anything like that. You can just click on. So that way you can follow me in the PowerPoint uh, when we do decide to do that. All right, so we're going to start today in chapter 1, verse 4. And as we move through this, you can take screenshots and uh, kind of move along with me as we go. There's a lot of information, as I said, but it is the one of some of the most glorious information that I've, I've ever studied personally. I've been studying Hebrews now for a long time, but really intensely in the past six months or so getting ready for this. I've got several commentaries and just trying to spend time praying and seeking the Lord on uh, what he would have me to share. But this has really helped me to understand Christ in a more complete way. And I'm excited to share that with you. So let me, let me touch on a few things just by way of reminder that we have went through through verses uh, 3 through 4. And that is, is that Christ is superior. If you remember the main goal of the book, the author is writing to more than likely a Jewish Christian audience who is toying with the idea of going back to Judaism, going back to the old ways, going back to the old covenant, and some have already done that. Or they're kind of stifled and they've become complacent and they're not moving forward in their understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and exalting him and loving him in that way. And so the author is throughout the book making the case that Jesus Christ is superior. And we, we just say superior, period, full stop. Because Jesus Christ is not superior to this or to that, but he is just superior, period. He's superior to everything. But specifically in this book, he's named to be superior to several things that would be absolutely relevant to a Jewish audience, to a Ju uh, an audience that had come out of Judaism. And namely, he has already in the first three to four verses, he has said that uh, Christ is superior as the revelation of God. In, uh, you know, in uh, long ago in various ways and various times, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken through his son. So Jesus Christ is the most excellent, most supreme revelation of God. The prophets spoke of God. Jesus is God and is revealed as God. Also, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets in the way that he conveys his message, that he is the word of God, having come down and dwelt among his people. He is the fullness of that revelation that was given to the prophets beforehand that came before Jesus Christ. And if you'll remember, all of this is kind of pointing toward this idea that Jesus Christ is the greater. He is the superior. And we don't just mean person or uh, a savior, but he's superior in every way, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. They spoke of the radiance. If you watched last week when I did my sermon from my office, I made a big deal out of the, the, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, meaning that Jesus Christ does not speak of God's glory, that he is God's glory that comes from God, okay? Whereas Moses, what? He longingly desired, pleaded to be able to just see God's glory. Moses, the great Moses, the mediator, the administrator of the Mosaic Covenant, the one who God handed down the, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to on Mount Sinai, 
this figure who God spoke of as others I speak to in different ways, but Moses I speak to in a significant way. I meet with him. He, he is the one that I meet with. This Moses, who is so phenomenal and so great, he wanted to see the glory of God and couldn't. God told him, said, you can't handle my glory. You would die. You don't know what you're asking for. But God granted him to see what he could see of his glory, of his uh, wonder. Hit him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over him. And as, he moved, as his glory passed by, he was hidden. But when God had passed by and just enough glory was visible that, that Moses would be blessed but not die, he took his hand away and it says he saw God's backside. You know, so Moses, he wanted to see God's glory and he couldn't. And even what little bit of glory Moses could see of God, it was so rich and so powerful and so overwhelming that when he came down off of Mount Sinai, the people, so Moses could handle more because he had a special relationship with God, but the people couldn't even handle the glory that stuck to Moses and radiated off of him. So Moses just got a little bit that he could handle. And when he came down off of the mountain, the people looking at Moses, who had just met with God and received as much glory as he could handle, they said, Moses, you got to do something about this. I can't see this. I, don't want, I can't be around this. It's, harm, it's hurting me. This is too much for me. So Moses had to veil his face. But in contrast, Jesus is so much higher that Jesus not only can handle the glory of God, that he is the glory of God in all of its radiance, in all of its wonder, in all of its splendor, in all of its glory. And this is the thrust of the book, that Jesus is superior. And I don't want to spend much more time. You can go back and watch some of those. But just to kind of tell you where we're going and what we're doing. I want to start here in verse 4 that I have already uh, taught on, but just by way of uh, remembering, I went backwards, hold on, I ain't got time for that. All right, I'm just going to put all of these up here so you can kind of see. Uh, so it ends the first, and I, and I had told you before that verses 1 through 4 are kind of this thesis statement of the whole book. That Jesus Christ is the final revelation, that he is greater than the prophets, and he is the fulfillment. He is, in nature, the same as God. That Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning that Jesus Christ is the same substance as God. Okay, We broke that down just a little bit, and we talked about what God, what Jesus is. It's not just who Jesus is, it's what Jesus is. That Jesus is God, okay? And so he finishes uh, section, the section three through four with verse four saying this, having become, which is an odd way to say this, and we'll talk about this a little bit, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is, is more excellent than theirs. Having uh, received a name, having uh, become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So I pointed out uh, seven different ways that Christ's ministry proved far superior to the angels uh, in, in many different ways. These seven, many different ways, but these seven kind of touch on where we we're going. And I ended with this. But this is kind of what we're going to be looking at. Number one, Christ is the Son and not a created being. Christ is the Son and not a created being. Number two, Christ as God the Son is worthy of worship. That's something no angel can say. Angels are ministers, but they are imperfect. 
Christ is the mediator between God and men, which brings about purification from sin once for all. Angels merely minister and run errands for God. God is the only one that can make perfect. Christ makes perfect that which he purifies. Number five, Christ is the creator and sustainer even of the angels. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute, why all of this is significant, especially to a Jewish audience, and should be to you as well, and I think it will be when we unpack some stuff. Number six, Christ is the rightful heir of all things. Now, I didn't get all the way in depth of Christ being the heir of all things. We had talked about, especially coming out of the idea that Christ is superior to the prophets. We had talked about how Christ is the fulfilling heir of all the prophecies and promises that were made through the prophets in the Old Testament. But truth be told, Christ is the heir of all things, not just the promises of God, but Christ is, I don't know if you ever thought about this, Christ is the heir of even the judgment of the unbelievers. That all things, good, bad, indifferent, up, down, left, right, all things belong to Christ. And I, this is another topic that I don't have time for, but I'll mention. Many people don't see a use in hell, and they just don't think that God would do that. But what we miss out on understanding is, is that hell is absolutely necessary in the economy of God because it is the other side of love, which is justice. And those who are suffering in hell forever, eternally, are glorifying God there too. You say, wait, what? I thought that they hated God. They do. The way that God glorifies himself by punishing those in hell is that they are receiving justice, which exalts and magnifies his glorious, righteous judgment and justice, that he is a righteous and just God who pays sin what it is owed. Does that make sense? Okay, but moving on from there, Christ is the rightful heir of all things. Number seven, Christ, the God-man, is king. So this is kind of just a synopsis of where we're going to be going in 5 through 14, which all of this is one section together, and he's going to make this huge argument and case of why and how Christ is superior to the angels. Well, if you're like me, the first thing that I ask is, why is it that uh, so much attention is immediately given to angels. Does that not seem odd to anyone else? Is that he's talking about Christ being superior to the prophets, Christ being a superior revelation, Christ being God in the flesh, and then all of a sudden in verse 4, bam, Christ is superior to the angels. Where does the angels things come from? Why, do we, why are we turning our attention to the angels? This is a good question. Why is the attention immediately turned to showing the supremacy of angels? Well, one... I'll give you a few different reasons. One, the angels and the angelic realm are far above humanity in the created order. Now, those of you who, with an understanding of the New Testament, you may already be jumping ahead of me thinking, but wait a minute, aren't we going to judge angels? Okay, step back from that a second and think about the audience that the author is addressing. He's addressing a Judeo audience that has moved out of Judaism and into Christianity, many of them, and they're still struggling with the idea of Old, Old Testament, Old Covenant teachings and the realities that were then. And what we understand through those realities is, and just reality in general, is that the, an the angels and the an angelic realm is far above humanity and the realm in which we dwell in, the physical reality that we can see. So the angelic realm is the heavens, okay? The angelic beings are said throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to excel in strength, 
They're messengers of God. Uh, now, we're talking about non-fallen angels. There's fallen angels, too, which are demonic, right? They have been cast out of heaven. But what we're talking about are those angels that are winds and flames of fire, ministers for God. They go and they do his bidding. We see them showing up in the Old Testament to, uh, to let the people of God know what God wants them to know. So they're messengers and, and so on and so forth. So the angelic realm, when he's speaking to this, he's addressing this because the angelic realm and angels are far above humanity. Number two, the angels were the prime agents of delivering the Mosaic Covenant to the prophets of old. We see this in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. That, so what would, what would be the only ones above the prophets? Remember, he's already said that Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. He's superior to the prophets. His message is superior. Well, many of the prophets received their word through angels, a mediator between God and man, that God would speak to the prophets through the angels. And the angels would be the ones who had the word of God that had, they had received from God. So you see now what the author is doing. He's saying, not only is Christ superior to the prophets, but he's superior to those who are superior to the prophets. He's going up one realm. Because what the author is wanting to do is, He's wanting to take away any idea that there is any being with any higher authority, rank, relationship, or position over the Son of the living God. And he's going to say Christ is not only superior to the prophets, but he is superior to the angels who many of the prophets got their message from. They were under the authority. And then three, the Jewish audience would have had a high regard for angels. We know that this would be the case, that they would have had a high regard for angels. This would have made it very difficult to accept a human as the supreme being, God in the flesh. Can you think about that for just a moment? Now, we know that the, uh, that the prophecies in the Old Testament, when we understand them through a New Testament lens, show us that the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the one who would come, the Savior, would be God in the flesh. Okay, but you can't read those like that in only that way. That we must understand that those who that message came to would have read and understood those in a different way. They didn't have as much revelation as we have today. They didn't have the New Testament. We, have, we call that progressive revelation, meaning that they didn't have as much light as we do. They didn't have as much... Uh, clarity as we do now that we have the New Testament and the New Covenant come through Christ and we have the Apostles writings that clarify for us what the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was talking about and so the Jewish audience would have thought angels were on this realm up here they would have thought, thought prophets were messengers of God and they brought the Word of God but the human realm down here was not anywhere near the angelic realm. And so to think that God, who stands far above and beyond angels, could be found in a man is completely ludicrous in a, in a Judeo system. It, because they would have thought of it being this lowly position. Especially, especially one that came in the way that Jesus Christ came. Maybe it would have been a little bit different if Jesus would have came in the way that they thought that he should come, which was how? On a, whore, on a white horse with a sword and defeating the, the Roman soldiers and the armies of Rome and establishing and taking back Jerusalem and setting up his physical kingdom like they thought he was going to do. But instead, 
the Messiah came as a baby incarnate. He came in a lowly form. Uh, Hebrews 2, 6 is going to tell us that he was made lower than the angels. So you see that Jesus Christ has been made lower than the angels. But the key here is, is that the author is saying, though this one was made lower, though he really was a man, he's already shown that he is God. We have, we have talked about the hypostatic union, that he who is the radiance of the glory of God, he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is God uh, of God, that he is God of God that he also took on human flesh, and he was made lowly, lower than the angels. And what he is going to say now is, through obedience and suffering, this man who is God has been exalted back to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns as superior to angels. Okay, So just be looking for that as we move through. Now, let's get into the text as we've kind of asked a few questions and kind of pointed out a few things that will help us to understand where we're going in the text, okay? So same verse, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this is a quotation of Psalm chapter 2, okay? This is a quotation of Psalm 2, specifically that verse is in Psalm 2 verse 7. One thing that I want to point out before we start unpacking what's in the text specifically, and I told you that there's a lot in there, so you know, tread with me a little bit right here. Let's, pu let's pull out some things. One thing that I want to show you is the way that we understand the author's use of the Old Testament. So the author here is going to use the Old Testament, which was the Jewish scriptures, and he's going to prove from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. But not only can we understand and learn how Jesus is superior to the angels by the way that the author uses the Old Testament and what he teaches us, but we can also find out and understand how we are to read the Old Testament in other ways and in other areas and for other information as well. And so what does the author do? What he does is he goes back to the Old Testament and he shows us that that which was written in the Old Testament by the prophet many days ago is actually about his son. Now, what that does not do is discredit that it actually taught in that day, in that context as well. But how that text applied in those days was one thing, but that reality had a greater vision as well. That truth had a greater vision, and it pointed out and toward and found its fulfillment and its, in its fullest application in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a key that I want you to remember as we move through Hebrews, the whole book, is this. And this is key to understanding how Hebrews is written. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going I'm to come back to this because I want to show you this right quick. I want to show you this key. Jesus, now this might, be, this might be a little different for you if you've never thought about these things in this way. And I want to try not to be too theological, but I think that this will help us in our application. Jesus has not always been an exalted man. Jesus has not always been an exalted man. His exalted position before the incarnation was in his divinity and not his humanity. You need to understand that. Jesus, the man, did not exist before the incarnation. You understand that? God the Son, 
who has always existed, took on flesh in the incarnation, and humanity was added to his deity. Jesus the man did not exist before the incarnation. God the Son existed in his deity. His humanity was added to his deity at the incarnation. Jesus the God-man proved himself to be the Son of God through his obedience and suffering. This is the means by which Jesus the God-man is exalted back to the position of glory enjoyed by God the Son in eternity past. He will forever be the exalted and glorified God-man. Now I bring that out because that's going to be key for us to understand for, for us to understand what the author is doing when he starts talking about Jesus Christ inheriting a name that is greater than the angels or having become superior to the angels what do you mean Jesus having become Jesus is all made Jesus is God how can he become superior to the angels but I'm getting ahead of myself here so let's look at Psalm 2 and this is where this quote comes from now I, I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did because this is magnificent not just in teaching us what is being said but how we are to read Psalm 2, you can read it with me in your Bible if you'd like. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak. Now, you remember that God spoke in those last days, but in these, I mean, in previous days, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. So he says, let me tell you about this word that's going to come forth and bring wrath and terror. I will tell you of the decree. You, Lord, said, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The Hebrew author is going back about this psalm and saying, that was Jesus. Jesus is the word that will come forth and bring fury and terror and salvation. He is the one. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The heir of all things, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How many of you have seen that picture of Jesus before? Man, we need that picture of Jesus. Everybody's always painting limp-wristed hippie Jesus with long hair and a purple dress. Isn't it the truth? Every picture I've ever seen on a wall in a church is, is just lovely Jesus who's got nice flowing locks and purple robes. And, he, you know, I, had, I was listening to this guy a long time ago, and he said, he said something that stuck with me. I never forgot it. He said, you know why the churches are becoming effeminate and filled with women alone and the men are vacating the church? He said, one reason at least is that the picture of Jesus hanging on the wall, men come in, they look at it, and they say, I could whip him. <laughs> and they think 
I cannot serve somebody I can whip. They said, I could take him. You're not taking this Jesus. You see, Revelation 19 says that when Jesus returns, he'll have a sword in his mouth, fire in his eyes. He'll be treading out his enemies in the winepress of his wrath, and their blood will be flowing. On his, on his uh, robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're talking about tatted up Jesus with a sword in his mouth and fire in his eyes. That's the man I can bow down to, right? That's the man I can bow down to. But that hasn't always been the man, Jesus Christ. He came in lowly form. And we love lowly form Jesus, right? What was that movie? Baby Jesus. We just love baby Jesus. Baby Jesus, I pray, you know, sacrilegious as it was. But that is our culture. We love baby Jesus. We don't, too much, we don't too much care for King Jesus on the throne, who you better bow down to or the wrath will be kindled. Ooh. Nah, I don't want to be on that Jesus bad side. But take a look here at, at what's going on. He's, he's referring back to a psalm that was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever showed up on the scene. And he's saying that was about Jesus. That was about Jesus. So we see how the author uses the Old Testament to point to Jesus. We also have Jesus saying that all, he's, he's talking to these Pharisees who know the scriptures front and back, back to left, up and down, whatever. And he says, you search the scriptures thinking that you're going to find life in those. But you fail to realize that all of these teach about me. That Jesus Christ is the main focus of all of the scriptures. And he is the place where they find their fulfillment. Okay, let's jump forward a little bit and start unpacking this specifically. What are we to make of verse 4? This is what I was talking to you about a while ago. <clears throat> Let me see if my pen is working here. What are we to make of this? Having become as much superior to the angels. What do you mean having become? That's a question that I think we need to ask. And it says, today... I have begotten you. What? I thought that Jesus Christ was God. I thought that he had always existed. I thought that he had existed uh, with the glory of God from all eternity to all eternity. These are the questions. Is Jesus not God? Has he not always been superior? Has he not always existed? And remember what I told you. Remember the key. And it's going to pop up again here in just a minute. Remember the key. I know, and listen, I want to quote this, okay, before I start even talking about the Trinity, okay, and I'm not going to talk much about the Trinity, because I'm going to lean on Charles Spurgeon here, uh, and I want to read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon, I think that he hit this on the head, okay, now, where's my brother Austin at, is Austin in here, he's, he's back there in the booth, Austin loves to argue with me, he'll take an opposing position, even if it's not his, just to argue with me, am I wrong, brother? <laughs> but he and I and several others in systematic theology and prayer group, we just like to hammer stuff out and just talk, okay? And sometimes that's fine, but sometimes it can be harmful, but we do it in good fun. I, I love Austin. He makes me stay sharp. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about the intricacies and the overwhelming reality of what is the Trinity. He says... Speaking of this verse, today I have begotten you. If this refers to the Godhead of our Lord, let us not attempt to fathom it. 
For it is a great truth, a truth reverently to be received, but not irreverently to be scanned. It may be added that if this relates to the begotten one in his human nature, we must here also rejoice in this mystery, but not attempt to violate its sanctity by intrusive prying into the secrets of the eternal God. The things that are revealed are enough without venturing into vain speculations. In attempting to define the Trinity or veil the essence of, div of divinity, many have lost themselves here. Here, great ships have floundered. What have we to do in such a sea with our frail skiffs? I read that just to say that there are truths and mysteries in this verse that far exceed any silly attempt by me to try to explain the vastness of the Trinity. But I will point out just a few things that I believe are just right there in the text, and I think that'll be enough. So we look here at the text, and we see that the text... So these are the questions that jump to my mind as we read this, okay? What do you mean? Isn't Jesus God? How can he become this, or how can he become that? And so we ask these questions... <clears throat> And we, co we come to this place, and we understand that as we read through chapter 1, that at least what we know that God is talking about here, as he's shown the distinction between Christ's deity, as he's already said in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, that Jesus is the glory that emanates from God and is of the very substance that God is. Remember last two weeks ago we said, whatever God is, that verse teaches us, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the radi radiant uh, the glory, he is God that comes from God, and he has come down to be with us. Jesus is God. And so we see these things like this, having become as much superior to the angels, and today I have begotten you. Where that happens in the eternal sequence of events that God has deemed necessary, when Jesus gained sonship and inherited that name, we don't know all of that. And I'm not going to go into that today, but what we do know is is that Jesus, who is God, existed from eternity past, set aside his divinity, came down and dwelt among us, and took on the form of a servant lower than the angels. Now, what we, what, now this is beautiful right here, and I hope you're keeping up with me. I see some of you nodding. What we see here is this beautiful reality that Jesus Christ, who, who is God and existed forever in eternity past, has set aside his divinity and taken a lowly position as a human servant below the angels. But as he grew and as he matured, as he came into his purpose as a man, he grew in wisdom and stature. He was obedient to God. He began to fulfill all of the aspects. The text is going to say later that he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. He fulfilled the scripture of God. And as he's doing these things, he is proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the son of the living God. And he has come down to the earth to do the work of God of salvation, to glorify God and to redeem the elect of God and after doing that work having done that work 
He was exalted because of that work. The God-man was exalted because of that work. And this is what we're looking at here as we say, having become as much superior to the angels. In the, Jesus Christ, the man, became superior to the angels through his obedience and through his righteousness. Okay, let's move on. What? Was there something wrong in there? Well, tell me because when you do that, I can't go past it. Oh, angles. My bad. I bet they take angles as they descend down. Angels take angles. For which, okay, so verse 5, let's move on. For to which of the angels, let me read it from here. I'm looking at looking here better. For to which of the angels, okay, now we're coming right out of verse 4 that says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited as much is more excellent. Now we're going to be able to move a little bit faster. Verses 5 through 14 are kind of lumped together. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So, for which of the angels did God ever say? First thing that we want to notice is, is that this is a rhetorical question. God never, ever, ever said this about any angel. He never did. Is that spelled right? He never, ever said that about any angels. Only of Christ has he said that you are my son. Now, what does sonship... Okay, so we look at this, and remember the transition in times, the transition to fulfillment. Now, the beautiful thing is, I'm going to jump way ahead of myself here, is that what this is doing is showing that Jesus Christ is far superior than the angels. But what you need to understand is, is that through Christ, we also exceed the angels as well. And that the Bible even says in other places that do you not know that we will judge the angels? Paul tells us that in Corinthians. That we will judge. What do you mean? That Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And through Jesus Christ, as the seed of Abraham, through the promise of faith that we learn about in Galatians chapter 3 and all over the Bible, is that we too will become little Christ, meaning that we will take Christ into ourselves and that we will be exalted above the angels as well. You know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine and uh, just want to touch on this for a second. Listen, anybody online and any of you out there, be careful not to say this. Don't ever say when a loved one dies or someone dies, heaven's gained another angel. No, it hasn't. That is just wrong, and it's degrading. This is the beautiful truth taught here and all throughout Scripture. We do not become angels upon death. Believers do not become angels upon death. It is just a mistake. Maybe it comes from Western media, movies. I don't know where that comes from. Don't ever say that. It's just not true. They say, oh, heaven's gained a new angels or, or, you know, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, whatever. And you can't ever correct anybody when they say that because they just lost a loved one, right? And so now as I sit here, let me just say it. Uh, I don't know of anybody who said that out here. But just to clarify, you do not get wings. You do not become angels. And neither do they. You remain a human being. What you need to understand is that angels aren't humans and humans aren't angels. Angels don't become humans and humans don't become angels. No, as a matter of fact, believers do not become angels. Heaven did not gain another angel. No, heaven gained something greater and more excellent than an angel. 
a believer, a born-again child of God who has taken on the image of the Son of God. Angel, nah, they, they serve us. We judge them. You see the beauty of this now. Because Christ is exalted, superior to the angels. You, as a son of the living God, through faith in Christ, heir according to the seed, heir according to the promise, you are lifted up and exalted. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that you have been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself, but a gift of God, so that no one can boast. And what? And you have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. What? That is crazy. That is crazy. All right, I got to move. I wasn't even supposed to do that. All right, so we see, but this is the transition from slavery to sonship. This is the transition from slavery to sonship. So he said, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Angels aren't sons. Angels don't have that kind of relationship. They are ministering spirits. They are, they are uh, runners. They're gophers. They go, and, and I'm, not, I'm not demeaning angels. Praise God for angels. I'm not doing that. I'm just pointing out what the text is teaching here, is that angels are not sons. They don't have that relationship. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that angels long to look on the things that you looked at, that angels wish that they could be humans. Don't degrade your family member by saying, heaven's gained another angel. No, he's not been demoted. He's been promoted Amen. through Christ. Through Christ, who is far superior. Sonship brings with it many Old Testament realities that every Jew would have understood. Here is a sample. That's another thing that we can learn by the author looking back to. He looks at Psalm 2, Psalm 97, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. All these different Psalms. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, talking about the son. And I wish I had time to get into all that, but I don't, so we just have to move. But here we go. Here's, some, here's just a few realities that every Jew would have understood. And that, when the author uses the old, these Old Testament passages, can you, can you imagine what these Jews are thinking, right? What these, even Judeo-Christians, and maybe they had heard some of this, maybe they hadn't. But the author here is going back to their, their scripture and saying, you don't even understand what your scripture teaches. Let me tell you what your scripture teaches. And Paul, or whoever this author is, goes back and says, what you had read thinking that it was about David, thinking that it was about Samuel or uh, Solomon, thinking that it was about whoever, who it was actually about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of the Jew who hadn't converted yet thinking, the audacity that you have, the audacity that you have to tell me that this humble Galilean servant peasant who was hung on a cross and he couldn't even defend himself or defeat Roman soldiers, you, you're telling me that's God? You see why now the author is taking it up to prove that that man who died on that cross did that to prove that he was the son of God that was prophesied in the scripture. They would have known it. So here's just a sample of some uh, sonship realities that would have been understood. Substance or nature, meaning that if you're like Titus is my son, Ezekiel is my son, Asher is my son, meaning that they, I'm a human being, they're a human being, Right? I don't have puppies, right? Heather's not having a litter of, of sheep. I don't, you know, whatever. She's having what? Human beings. And when you're identified as a son, 
It is carrying with it the reality that he's of the same substance. Now, I just put one verse in here. You can go and look it up if you want to. John chapter 5, verse 18 shows us this reality that the Jews would have understood this as well. Because that text says that they sought all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling himself the Son of God, making himself out equal to God. They knew that he was claiming deity when he said that he was the Son of God, and they were going to kill him for it. They understood this. Now you see the, the force of this telling it to a, Jew, a, a Jewish audience. Which of the angels did he ever say? So they had this high view of angels, and he's saying, you think the angels are great? Which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? And the Jews, I imagine, would have been, oh, good boy. <laughs> Authority. All authority is his, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to the son. Beyond this idea is the idea that whoever I am, my son carries the same identity, the same authority, the same power if the relationship is perfect. And we know that Jesus' relationship with the father was perfect. So Jesus Christ has all the power and all authority. Relationship, we touched on this a minute ago. He and the father are one, John 10, 30. Do you not know that I and my father are one? He goes on to say in many other places, uh, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I speak on my Father's behalf. He has relationship with the Father that the angels never did. The angels are great. The angels are wonderful. I hope I have a thousand angels uh, ministering and protecting me, watching out for me all the time. All the time. They are more powerful than me while I'm here on this earth. And I pray that they're watching out for me. But they are not the Son. Jesus Christ is the Son, and He tells the angels when to go and where to go. They descend upon the Son up and down. They ascend and descend upon the Son. He and the Father are one. Lastly, inheritance. We already talked about this. won't spend much uh, time on it. That all things are His. I put up here Roman, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. It talks about all things are made in Him, to Him, through Him, and for Him. But we understand through many different texts that he is the heir of all things. We've already talked about that in chapter 1. That Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. The whole world was created for Christ. That's why I'm telling you a little bit of application right here. Is that you will never find your meaning and purpose in this life until you start to glorify Christ. Because you were made to exalt him. You were made for him. Your purpose is him. Your glory is him. Your suffering is him. Your peace is him. Your longevity is him. Your reward is him. And if you don't find him, then you are wandering around, stumbling in the dark, always looking for what you cannot find because it can only be found in the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. That's just reality. That's reality. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, now, we, he already mentioned the son, but now we move into this idea of the firstborn son. And the firstborn son carries a ton of stuff along with it too. And that is, is that he is the rightful heir and the one that would take over and run everything, right? In human terms. So as the son, the firstborn, all praise, honor, and glory are his. Unlike the angels, he is worthy of worship. Now, we touch on this because it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Angel worship has been a huge problem throughout all of human history. And here at this point, the author of Hebrews says, not only are you not to worship angels, that angels are to worship the Son. 
That's how exalted Jesus Christ is. Not, not only of men, but of angels, the highest beings outside of God. He is worthy of their worship as well. Revelation 2, 8 and 9, I, John, and the, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now watch this. But he said to me, that's the angel, said to me, you must not do that. The angel said, don't do that. You get it? John fell down to worship this angelic being who's powerful and mighty and strength and he is spirit and so he can move as he pleases. He said, this angel says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Pair that with what Hebrews chapter 6 says, the angels worship him as well. And the angel says, worship God alone. The angels testify with the author of Hebrews that they only worship God. They worship Jesus. Jesus is God. <clears throat> of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Just some things that we can pull out of this text. And I'm going to just kind of move through these and, and show you some things. And then I want to do some application at the end. So take pictures or whatever you'd like. These are things that we can just easily see from these texts right, right here. <clears throat> he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What this is pointing out to us in at least one regard is, is that angels are created beings. Much like wind, much like fire, angels are created beings. They are made. They are made to do what God tells them to do. God commands the wind. God commands the fire. It does what he tells it to do. They are created just like natural elements. They are part of God's creation. Angels serve a purpose just as wind, fire, and other created things. God wants to move some leaves. He blows the wind. God wants to thin a forest. He strikes lightning and starts a fire. God wants to, you know, exercise judgment. He may use wind. He may use fire. We see these things used in the scripture uh, as judgment. We see them in other ways. It, it, wind can be a blessing. You know, these ships out to sea that are sailing through in these times, that God bring along a wind and carry them along. The, the point is, is that they do what they're told. They're agents of purpose. Angels are commanded to do whatever it is they do by God. Put all of this together. That Jesus Christ is God, a very God, and that Jesus Christ has created everything. The angels are also part of his creation, and they do what he tells them to do. <clears throat> angels, are, uh, angels are under the authority of their sovereign, that should be T-H-E-I-R, sorry, bud. Uh, the authority of their, <laughs> they are sovereign, uh, of their sovereign. I was up till two last night finishing this up. Okay. That all popped up at one time. That's okay. I don't mind. But of this, okay, so now he's laid out the angels and uh, kind of given a little brief description of what they are and who they are. Now he's going to contrast that, uh, contrast the sun with the angels. <clears throat> and he says this. He says, but of the sun, so the angels, he says, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, now this is beautiful. Check this out. 
But of the Son, he, now let's, let's get straight who we're talking about. This is the Father. He, the Father, says, watch this, your Christ throne, oh God. How the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, how they miss this, I cannot fathom. In this statement, and A.W. Pink agrees that this may very well be the strongest explicit statement of deity in the entire New Testament. That God the Father says, your throne, O God. The Father explicitly names the Son... God. God the Father calls God the Son God and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your command your companions now there's a ton in that right there i'm just going to point out a few things that's already up here the son is god he is not created now remember what we had said about the angels they're created see the contrast that the author is making here the son is not created the father calls him god <clears throat> the son sits on the throne as king directing purpose giving out purposes the the angels are commanded where to go and what to do jesus is the one sitting on the throne with the scepter in his hand telling them where to go and what to do the son loved righteousness and hated wickedness and i capitalized these two right here and i didn't catch this at first it was pointed out to me uh in a commentary that it, it these are past tense that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness and it pointed this out and i think that it's it, it's at least helpful if nothing else is that you see how it says god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions remember go back to the key that i told you about hebrews <clears throat> is that jesus christ the sovereign god the son who existed for all time came down and took a lowly position as a humble galilean servant took on human flesh but through his obedience, the, the man, Jesus, through his obedience and his life and his suffering and his sacrifice was exalted as the God-man to the throne in heaven where he would sit down at the right hand of the Father and be vindicated and proven to be God in the flesh. Meaning that the fleshly humanity of Jesus Christ was so married to the divinity of Jesus Christ that you cannot distinguish anymore the man from the God in so much as the authority they carry. That Jesus Christ, the man, is exalted to the place of God and sits on the throne. I want you to think about the implications of that. Is that you're a human being far separated from God because you are not like him. But Jesus Christ, who is God, added humanity onto himself. 
did the work of the righteous, obedient servant and was exalted to the right hand of God and has set down as God with man, humanity, and joined to his deity. And so now we have a representative that sits on the throne, a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Is that Jesus Christ, why? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In his life here on earth, see this is talking past tense? In this life here on earth, not, that, not, that it, not as if he, has, he doesn't love it now, but what this is doing is reaching back and saying the way that Jesus Christ lived his life in loving righteousness and hating wickedness is why he was exalted and was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, meaning that he was lifted up out of the common realm of humans. And they go back and forth on whether your companions, and I've went back and forth on whether your companions are angels or humans, believers uh, i say it doesn't matter that he is exalted whether it's talking about angels or humans that jesus christ is high lifted up and here's this summary statement the son as the god man has been exalted above all jesus christ who is the god man has been exalted above all uh, okay let me, uh, <clears throat> should I move through this really quickly and touch? We can finish. Only got four verses. <clears throat> Only two slides, though. I think you'll be all right. <laughs> Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. Well, that way we'll be done with this section. Check out what it says. And you, <clears throat> Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. A couple of things that I'll just point out here. It says here that you, Lord, uh, you know, there's another indication that God is speaking to Jesus as Lord. But I want to point this out. Laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens. You see what that's doing there? That it's showing this spectrum and the way that it encompasses that Jesus Christ is the foundation of all things is it goes down to the lowest region, earth, and it goes up to the highest region, heavens, and says he made it all. From the earth to the heavens, he's made it all. He is the beginning. He is the foundation. You laid the foundations, meaning that if Jesus Christ isn't there, they all crumble. Remember how in the first part of chapter 1 it said, He holds everything together by the word of His power. He is the foundational principle. He is that which holds it up and continually sustains it and causes it to be and to remain what it is. And this is this overarching statement, too, that Jesus Christ is before all things because he laid the foundations before they were ever there. And he did that with the earth and in the heavens. They will perish, but you remain. That they will wear out, that they are temporary, but that Jesus Christ is eternal. The sun is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Everything that exists finds there or its existence of beginning in him, earth to heaven. Everything exists by his continued sustaining. The son is self-existent. He is the first cause. We see that right here. It says, 
but you remain. Everything else perishes. Everything wears out. You remain. You stay the same. Right here it says, you are the same. Nobody ever began Jesus. He never started. The man Jesus Christ had a beginning, the incarnation. The Son of God has no beginning. He has no cause. He is the first cause. He created everything. And that's why it says that he was begotten, speaking of Jesus, the man, in time. He became, he added uh, humanity to himself. But the Son, the second member of the Trinity, is self-existent. He is the first cause. The Son is and will always be. That great name that uh, Yahweh gave, I am, Yahweh, means I am. Jesus Christ says to the Jews before Abraham was, I am, that Jesus Christ is deity. And the last one, <clears throat> and to which of the, here's more contrast, and this 10 through 14 kind of serve as a conclusion statement for the, all of chapter 1, and going back from the, to the earth to the heavens, showing Jesus' supremacy over all things. And I was going to read this quote from Pink that talks about, he is the excellency of all excellencies. He is far above and beyond, but uh, I think you get the idea. The text is just bam, bam, hammering it home. And the last verses <clears throat> say this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal salvation or to in inherit salvation? This final thrust here at the end of this chapter, speaking to these Jews, he's telling them to which, and again, it's this rhetorical question, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until, now that's a cool word right there I could spend some time on, but the, the answer is never. He has never said this to an angel, but only to the Son, only to the second member of the Trinity, only to the exalted God-man. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we, we divide this right here. This is verse 13, and this is verse 14, distinguishing the Son from the angels. So Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Like right now, for you and for I, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> but you might have read right past it if we didn't pick it out. But this isn't a, uh, an indefinite position of seatedness on the throne. Do you see this word here? This right here lets us know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but there's going to come a time for how long, for whatever. We could talk about that another time. But there's going to come a time where he will stand up. Okay, until what? I make your enemies a footstool. The son is seated at the right hand of the father for now, commissioning the angels to render service to his heirs. We see this, that the angel, so Jesus Christ is seated on the throne as king. The angels are running around doing his bidding, ministering to those who are the heirs of Christ, to whoever has believed, whoever has faith, they go at Jesus' bidding. There is coming a day when he will get up, for the text says, until. Just pointed that out. When he gets up, he will come again in fiery flame to destroy his enemies under his feet. You remember Psalm 2, where it talks about the wrath of God is kindled. That he, see, we have this idea of Jesus just being loving and gracious and kind, and he is. Praise God for that. But Jesus Christ has also been handed over all judgment unto him. 
that there will come a time where you will have to face what you did with the son. And if you have not bowed the knee to the son, your blood will flow through the streets. The angels minister, render service is what that technically means to the heirs of Christ throughout these last days until the second coming of Christ and the fall of his enemies. Now, just to kind of close everything out, I'm done here. That's pretty good. Hey, how many verses? That's nine verses, right? Hey, it was by the hand of God. There must have been an angel here rendering service. That was a miracle. But I, let, me, let, me, let me conclude in this way here. It is our utmost privilege and honor. It is a miracle. It is unfathomable that we have the opportunity to become heirs of the living God along with Christ. Let me bring all of this home to you, hopefully, just for a minute. We just talked about a lot of stuff. There was some technical stuff, some theological stuff, some practical stuff. But let me make it as practical as I can just for five minutes. All of that, what we just read, and all of that that I just unpacked for you, and we went through a lot of material, to show you the excellencies and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, who was God, who came down here upon the earth and took on the form of a servant and made himself lower than even the angels. That he who was exalted in a glorious form with God from eternity past chose to set aside all of that divinity, to set, a, to set aside his divine attributes and take on this lowly form in order to do the work that needed to be done to redeem you and I. And not only that, not only did Jesus Christ come and live a perfectly upright life, not only did he do the things that he was supposed to do, he loved doing the things he was supposed to do. There's a huge difference in there, folks. There's many of you in here that you didn't really want to come here this morning, but you did what you were supposed to do. You don't really want to get up and go to work tomorrow. You don't really want to do this anymore, but you're doing what you're supposed to do. But this Savior of ours, this Savior of ours isn't some angel that's just trying to do his best to help you along in the economy of reality. But he is the God-man who brings perfect purification from sins, past, present, and future. And not only does this God-man cleanse you from your sins, but he seats you in the heavenly places and gives you a divine calling upon your life to carry on the work that Jesus Christ has started and is sustaining and pushing in and through you. You are not just okay until that day. You have been purified and made righteous with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who exceeds even the highest of angels. The archangel Michael bows down at the feet of Jesus Christ. When people bow down to angels, the angels say, no, 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 don't do that. That's reserved for one. And that one we get to call brother. We get to call friend. 
We get to call master. We get to become one with him. And not that it should cause pride and arrogance or this sense of dominion. But it is a reality that in Christ you are exalted above even the angels as well. How often do we hope for guardian angels? And we pray that we have angels rendering service. We pray that Jesus would send some. But the fact of the matter is, is that any angel that comes is coming by command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say unto you that as a child of God, as one who has faith and has been regenerated to become like God, to become like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of the Son, that you have the Son Himself interceding for you right now in front of the Father. You have the Son of the living God who exceeds and excels far beyond the angels right now speaking to the Father on your behalf. Goodness. This high and this high and lifted up glorious son is proclaiming your name. I want all of you right now to just call out your name on the count of three. Just say your name. One, two, three. You know that Jesus says, any man who denies me before men I will deny him before my father but any man who speaks my name before men I will declare I will speak his name before my father what that the son of the living God who excels and is far superior than the greatest angelic being with all might and force and power are but a speck in his hand he spoke that angel into existence that's the power of our God that's the power of the sun that he formed the earth in his hands and he scattered out the mountains and he, and he poured out the oceans and he created it to move in a certain way. He pushes the tide out and he brings the tide in. He stretches the moon and he pushes it and he rotates the earth. This God who laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens who tells angels where to go and what to do he has called you brother. He has come to dwell inside of you. If you would but call upon his name. If you would but call upon his name. Let's all stand to our feet. Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise. And as we sing this last song, I pray that your voices reflect the glorious truths of what was just unpacked for you. That this Savior, who is high and lifted up, exalted and superior to the angels, has purified you from sin and brought you to the throne room of grace in which you enter with confidence because of the work that the Son has done. He dwells inside of you and empowers you to do what he's called you to do. Let's worship him. The altar is open. The front is open for response. If you need somebody to pray with you or whatever you need, worship him.